Welcome to the Queer Movie Podcast, celebrating the best and worst in LGBTQ plus cinema, one glorious genre at a time. I'm Rowan Ellis. And I'm Jazza John. Each episode, we discuss a movie from a different genre of cinema. This episode's genre is... Queer Horror! Thanks, Jazza. But before we dive into this week's episode, Rowan, what's the gayest thing you've done since we last spoke? Well, this is actually something that I've wanted to do for a long time, but every time I've tried to do it, there's been a... It's not been available for me. And that is volunteering for um, a queer organisation, specifically for a queer youth group or kind of youth mentoring organisation, something like that. And there's sadly not a lot of them in London. And a lot of them kind of were, were at capacity or were, weren't doing their services a lot because of COVID. But at the beginning of the year, I applied and I've just found out today that I've been accepted. So I'm very excited. I've got to do some training, obviously, very soon. But yeah, I'm going to get to do some mentoring. It's going to be so cool. Woo-hoo. And you're officially becoming a queer elder um, oh soon anyway, yeah, aren't you? I am. I am. In, yeah. in a week's time, I will indeed hit 30 and therefore become <laughs> an OAP. Uh-huh. As a as a cis gay man, I stopped aging at 24. So um, let me know <laughs> what it's like. You never will reach that. Yeah, I'll let you know what it's like. Awesome. Thank you so much. And Jazza, what's the gayest thing that you've done since we last spoke? So recently, the UK started lifting lockdown restrictions, right? And we were able to have familiar relations again. I had relations with an individual and was able for the first time to actually complete a full session of prep. Do you know how prep works? I was wondering where you were going with it. I was like, complete a full session of what? Yeah, it's Before not you session. said prep, I was like, a full a full session of uh, a full familial dosage, relations? Like a, a you were able cycle, to what? A full cycle of prep. Excellent. Look at you. So I do have prep. You're able to get it on the NHS now. And it is, for anybody who doesn't know, a medication that prevents you from getting uh, HIV. And how it works is you're meant to take it two hours before you have relations. And then after you've had relations uh, in order to properly protect yourself. In the past, I have only ever prepared to have the relations and then never had to complete the whole cycle of prep. Oh my God, that's the saddest (laughs) thing I've ever heard. That's hilarious. You know what, that was excellent. That was a very good, gayest thing I've done since last episode. I feel like an actual adult now um look which at you. is very yeah look at me man in my 30s finally able to look after myself full disclosure to everyone listening jazz as he said that grinning like a little schoolboy does have a tiny gnome figurine right behind as he said i feel like such an adult there is a tiny gnome figurine right behind him i'm an adult who collects plushies and plays D. like these are you know these what are, fair enough yeah these are not things that are mutually exclusive <laughs> yeah you know what you're right <laughs> The film we have chosen for today is the 1970s vampiric gothic horror masterpiece, The Vampire Lovers, starring Ingrid Pitt and the absolutely legendary Peter Cushing. So without further ado, let's start nibbling away at Roy Ward Baker's The Vampire Lovers. Are you anticipating some kind of like dramatic horror music there? Do, that do, that do, was, do. Yeah, in my head, like it's the, the title card of Excellent. Uh, I actually Vampire Lovers, why not? 
<laughs> I know we just said that we were going to go straight into talking about the history of the genre and the you mm-hmm. know the context of it, but I just also need everyone to know not to make this the call out Jazza podcast, but <laughs> it it already is. I came up with a whole list of honestly iconic, wonderful queer horror movies have come out, especially some in the last few years because we have had a, an absolute amazing blossoming of queer horror within the last few years. Mm. I came up with an amazing shortlist. Jazza came up with a movie <laughs> that I immediately vetoed. That is the movie Lesbian Vampire Killers. Mm-hmm. Which has James which Corden has James in Gordon it. Which has James Corden in it. It's therefore a hate crime. Yeah. And I immediately vetoed it. And then the list, Jazza went through the list and it, it Basically, the secret came out that Jazza is a massive baby and uh, essentially (laughs) just was not able to watch an actual horror movie. And so Mm -hmm. we have watched this movie, which is horror in the most technical sense of the word. (laughs) No, but it's like it's it's a lot of foundations of horror, right? Like it's a classic gothic, lots of dark cobwebby castles um lots of scream queens uh, a couple of scream kings yeah it's every element of horror except the bit where it's scary which i think suited jazza just yeah. fine i think that was 100%. that was i think he's very pleased with himself that he managed to get this because the other we watched some of the trailers together and there were a few trailers that jazza stopped halfway through and went oh yes i think we get the idea and then <laughs> <laughs> and it was very obvious why. Apparently, I'm quite good to watch horror movies with. Just know that if you ever watch a, a legitimate horror movie with me that is actually scary, I'm not having a nice time. And you know what? In this podcast that I am lucky enough to have with you, Rowan, I want to have a nice time, you know? And I don't think that's too much to ask. Okay, well, <laughs> when we can next spend actual time together, maybe I'll just, I'll be like, oh, yeah, let's watch this nice little... <laughs> Like animated children's movie and then just slip in a horror movie instead. And you can just hold on to my hand. Maybe next year's Halloween we can have a special episode again and you can actually scare the hell out of me. Yeah, if everyone could just audio clip Jazza just then, essentially promising on his his firstborn son that he will watch a horror movie Mm -hmm. with me, that'd be great. So I know that Jazza, you've done, normally when we watch these movies, we do a little bit of context and then we talk to each other and go, oh, wait, shit, did we do the same context? Maybe, hopefully we looked up different bits of trivia, <laughs> otherwise this is going to be very boring for both of us. And luckily we had kind of done a mix. So I know that you've looked up Hammer Horror, which is the kind of studio and very specific niche genre that this particular movie is in. So would you like to tell me about it? I'm ready to learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Hammer, also great name, Hammer Productions. They were a production house in the UK who were famous for bringing a lot of classic horror from the black and white era of the 1930s into colour, remaking a lot of the classics like Frankenstein, Dracula, The Mummy, etc. Remaking them into colour movies for audiences throughout the 1950s and 60s. The other thing that they were very well known for doing is having a but ton of sequels for everything. So this particular movie that we're doing, The Vampire Lovers, uh, has two sequels to it. Lust for a Vampire, released the following year, and then Twins of Evil, which as far as I have been able to find out on the Wikipedia page, was just kind of like the same plot two more times, but with different actors. But to be fair, if the punters are going to go and watch it, then why not? Right. The reason that the vampire lovers itself is quite 
interesting and is at a little bit of a tipping point in terms of cinema is because it was towards the end of the strictness of the Hayes Code in the US, which was a piece of US legislation that was very uh, tight collared around the depictions of sex, nudity, deviant acts like homosexuality. I'm going to be annoying and interrupt here as the queer film historian bitch on this podcast because I think it's genuinely interesting. It wasn't technically a piece of like governmental legislation as such. It was a code that was self-imposed by Hollywood on itself, specifically because they thought that the government would be even more harsh. So they were like oh shit like let, let, that's just uh we promise no titties mm. we no gays uh, no, no no titties no, titties, no, titties, no gays. gays we promise um <laughs> and so yeah no it's it's uh it's one of those kind of really interesting things that actually happened with the comic comic books as well the comic code authority happened as well mm. a lot of industries at the time were like well i guess if someone's gonna do it it might as well be us to ourselves mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was kind of like uh, towards the end of the uh, prolific nature of the Hayes Code. And it was still actually really hard to get this past the censors, the vampire lovers, which obviously is pretty gay. There's naked ladies and there's titties absolutely everywhere. And there's also a man who dies while he's having a piss. So it's not really kind of like the highest brow of entertainment. But the reason that they were able to get especially the the gay shit through the censors, even at the time as they were expanding, was because it was based on the original source text from the 1800s, Carl Miller, which is like a classic text. And because it's seen as a classic text, they were like, actually, this is basically Shakespeare. I don't think anybody actually said that. But essentially, that's how they managed to to get around it just being true to the original yeah yeah exactly but yeah we're watching a a movie about lesbian vampires of course there's going to be a little bit of camper and gothic horror is always just a little bit of camp but it's also a really interesting moment in kind of like the attitudes of prudishness that were in hollywood throughout the 50s and 60s Absolutely. I do. I do agree with you. Like Hammer Horror is just camp. It's just campy. Like it just has that energy to it in general. It is now. And I think as well, like we'll we'll talk about this when we're actually talking about the plot and the performances and stuff in the next section. But yeah, the acting of the time was not exactly the most based in like realism. And and I think that that style of acting that was popular then, I think just is so imbued with camp uh-huh. as you look back on it now. Even if this hadn't had a load of vampires in it, I feel like it still would have felt a little bit Mm-hmm. kind of queer energy 100% it reminded me an awful lot of like Ryan Murphy vibes oh yeah which obviously is referential to this era of horror and I was like oh I 100% understand where all of these references mm-hmm. now come from in like our modern media as well uh, Rowan you had you also went away and did some of your own research you clever bookworm slash website worm uh, around like vampires sexuality all of those things. Uh, what did you end up finding? Come on, show and tell. Well, basically, for those for those who don't know about the uh, history of the vampire, <laughs> it's kind of appears in a lot of different folk tales and legends around different places. Just I think the idea of someone who needs to drain other people of their blood, which is very much linked to like you know life force in a lot of cultures. It makes sense that there would be kind of mythology around that and and kind of scary tales and all that kind of thing. But it kind of didn't necessarily get a kind of literary grounding until the early 1800s where John Polidori wrote The Vampire, which was actually created kind of as part of the sort of gothic horror writing contest that also produced Frankenstein. It was a good it was a good time that they were having in that rainy manor house and kind of interestingly the history of vampires i think 
has not necessarily been obviously in the mainstream link to queerness, but when you start looking into the history of it, it's a lot of like reading between the lines queerness going on. So for example, that original text of Vampire, a lot of people kind of thought that potentially the, the that kind of central character was based on Lord Byron. There was a bit of a mix up as to who had originally written the tale. Um, it was attributed to Byron originally and then kind of had to be redacted. And so you kind of have this element of like, oh, there's this creeping queerness in there. And that only became like more intensified when it came to Dracula, which came a bit later because again, Bram Stoker, lots of rumors about him being gay. He had a very close relationship with Oscar Wilde. He wrote some, frankly, uh, adoring love letters to Walt Whitman. (laughs) Really, really uh, very gay letters to Walt Whitman. And there are just some quotes uh, that come up in the book that feel very much like they are centered around a kind of repressed, (laughs) a repressed homosexuality, Mm -hmm. shall we say. A lot of people have pointed out the fact that he basically started to write Dracula very, very soon after Oscar Wilde's trial and conviction. And that there was potentially a link between that and like the anxieties of being this like queer man who was worried about being like discovered. So obviously, as with much of queer history, it is not provable. But I do think it's very interesting and it's something a lot of people have have talked about. But yeah, I think vampire stories in general, as well as being kind of horror, obviously have a lot of links to the idea of sexuality um, and sexual anxieties, I guess, over the years. When we're looking at this era as well, it's really difficult to kind of like put the gay label on it because it wasn't a term that they used for themselves either. But we're just kind of trying to view it for our own lens. Yeah, exactly. So in Dracula, for example, you've got Lucy, the character of Lucy, who's this kind of like symbol of the new woman so kind of more independent and breaking free of the constraints of society especially sexual constraints and so if she sort of gives herself or is compromised by this kind of foreign invader then she becomes this corrupted figure which is very you know if you read through the lines metaphorically it's very much a sort of like fallen woman virginity loss kind of situation and then it yeah i mean spoiler alert for dracula but she ends up being staked by like all of the men who she had been pursuing at one point or another during the story and dies Mm -hmm. this death that's very like writhing around and bleeding and it's very kind of like you know symbolically resonant in a lot of ways so yeah i think i think that like even if you come to twilight or to more modern depictions of vampires it doesn't necessarily have a victorian lens of sexuality it has a modern lens but it still feels like it might be commenting in some way so there's a lot more sort of in the vampire as the romantic lead for women's or like girls fiction it becomes much more about a man who needs to control his natural impulses and that he's able to do it for you the female love interest that's the twilight stuff isn't it exactly i'll be honest i wasn't even i wasn't even making that link Uh, Like, I feel like Twilight is such a long time ago now. Ancient history. Yeah, but like, uh, seriously, but yeah, I didn't even make that link of kind of like sexual repressedness. But then I haven't really read, I haven't read any of the Twilight books. I've only seen the movies. So maybe that's why it's not at the front of my mind. Mm. Well, allegedly, Stephanie Meyer did come up with the idea from some kind of romantically charged dream that she had. And she is quite from quite a religious background. So I think that the sexual repression and morality element to it is uh it's not has not Mm. been not commented on by people in the past (laughs) so yeah so i definitely think that the vampire legend and mythology and stuff has always had links to sex in some way and to that kind of forbidden element of sex and i think that that only gets more apparent when you talk about sex that is genuinely forbidden and taboo in the way that 
kind of same gender relationships might be. So, mm. yeah, it completely makes sense. Lesbian vampires <laughs> completely <laughs> makes sense on a literary level. It, it very much is not just a kind of, ooh, she's sexy and she's a lesbian and she's a vampire. It's like, oh, there is actually some kind of literary backing to making this a, a thing in your films. Did you ever, because I accidentally came across this while I was looking through stuff around the source material for uh, The Vampire Lovers, which is a, like a, a vampire novel that predates Dracula by a couple of decades called Carmilla about a lesbian female vampire. And apparently she's based on this Hungarian, I believe she's a princess. She's a, a fancy person. I'm called Elizabeth Bethroy. Have you seen her read about her if this is who i think it is yeah i think she married into a family and got an absolute ton of land and power from it and used that to allegedly just kill a lot of uh servant girls and some minor nobility some i don't think we have to say allegedly anymore this was in like the uh, the 15 16 she's not gonna sue us if <laughs> yeah, i think we're gonna get sued by elizabeth Bethroy of hungary fame um but she apparently killed up to 650 people and there are some people who say that she used to bathe in their blood to maintain like youth some of this is urban legend now and there's some people that say that she inspired because she was from the kingdom of hungary which at that time included slovakia and romania which is uh, kind of like the part of the world that is where like vampiric culture <laughs> comes from i guess and uh, some people even suggest that she inspired carmilla and dracula but yeah it's, like it's an interesting part of kind of like also the the empowered woman as well which was definitely i mean deviant for the time that vampire novels became really really big in the victorian era but certainly for like the 15 1600s when she was uh, alive as well and kind of like the fear and the wariness of the empowered uh maybe sexualized woman as well are kind of like themes that run through this type of horror too indeed with that i guess should we go into talking about the actual movie and how the lesbian vampire sort of um Displays herself. Displays herself. Displays herself in this movie. Sometimes literally displays herself. Quite literally. Mm -hmm. Dear listener, there's only so many times you can lean on your ability to make a killer gin and tonic. Trust me, I've had the headaches to prove it. Sometimes you need to shake up your drinks trolley, pun intended, and Shaker and Spoon's subscription cocktail box is the perfect way to do that. Each box they send you contains enough ingredients to make three different cocktails with your favourite spirit. All you need is to buy your own bottle and then you have all you need to craft 12 cocktails at home. It's between 40 and 50 of your American dollars every month, excluding the price of the bottle you buy, so is a sensible way to expand your drinking palette. You can even skip boxes or cancel whenever you like, my darling. Imagine, if you will, crowding around some popcorn with your loved ones and a fancy cocktail in hand, enjoying your own queer movie night. Yes, you too can experience what we experience together here on this podcast. We support you. And don't forget to get $20 off your first box by going to shakerandspoon.com slash queermovie. That's shakerandspoon.com slash queermovie. Queer Movie Podcast is part 
of Multitude, which is like a cool little collective of creatives. We like to give our audio siblings a shout out every now and again, and I'm very excited to recommend to you Exolore. In case you haven't noticed yet, Rowan and I are big nerds. Rowan has her Disney and D&D. I have my love of Final Fantasy and the Expanse novels. So this podcast is like catnip to us. Dr. Moya McTeer is the host and has the coolest job description of astrophysicist and folklorist, which honestly has me wondering what I've been doing with my life. Each episode, she goes through the how-to of fictional world creation, meaning you can apply her findings to any and all creative projects that you, yourself, are working on. Are you creating a homebrew for your D&D table? Are you scribbling away on your first sci-fi novel? Do you just find this stuff interesting? That's fine too. Honestly, it's necessary educational listening. I had a particularly fun time listening to Moya and guest Clark Rowanson go through the mechanics of building a world's magic system, and I think you'll find it interesting too. So, go give Exolore a listen and tell the Doctor we sent you. Now, back to the show. So, we normally split this into three different parts. Mm -hmm. We haven't conferred beforehand about what those parts are going to look like for this particular movie, but I have a feeling that we have a very similar through line. Mm. The first part I have referred to, because there was only one way we could refer to this part, given that in so many other films that we have covered in -hmm. our previous episodes, this was also the title of a section of the film. Mm -hmm. The Party and Its Aftermath. Yeah, 100%. It starts with the party in its aftermath. It's very all interesting things start with a party, as does this movie. Yeah, for some reason, so many stories. Normally, the party in its aftermath is the last act, mm-hmm. whereas in this one, it's it's the first. So essentially, what happens at the beginning of this movie is that we have this man who's narrating, talking about the fact that his sister has died and he is going on this revenge plot, castle ruins, evil European family, some very helpful vampire lore up front. He lets us mm-hmm. know you've got to decapitate them, you've got to stake them through the heart. We're getting a lot of exposition, but you know what? That's just how he rolls. It was quick. It was quick and acceptable, I feel like, you know? For, ding, was, ding, ding. Here we go. If, but also, is anyone going to come into something called the Vampire Lovers? Cold as to what a vampire is. Unlikely. I, like, I, I feel like most people are probably going to know broadly what a vampire is and how you kill it. Exactly. So it's it's the classic start of the vampire killer is here, He's narrating to us what's about to happen. We have a very fast zoom in on a guy's neck with fang bites. The (laughs) camera angles and uses within this movie are just very intense. They really love a good zoom in, dramatic zoom in. They really like a good kind of uh, interesting shots, shall we say, throughout this, which I did, did think heightened the camp element, but with, yeah, very quintessential Hammer Horror stuff. The evil figure of the vampire looked like i would say a halloween sheet ghost costume mixed with a dementor <laughs> oh well you have ruined that now i thought it looked like really quite impressive i did as well yeah no that isn't to diminish how okay, how kind cool. of creepy it did look cool um i think that is an accurate description of what it was dressed as to be fair yeah i was like you know what if people aren't going to go back and watch this movie if they're just listening this to to hear a little bit about lesbian vampires i want to paint them a picture and the picture is mm-hmm. 
a teenager, you know what, I'm going to build on this picture. The picture is a teenager who has been asked by their parents to take out their little kid sister and the little kid sister's friends trick-or-treating at Halloween. <laughs> he obviously is too cool for Halloween costumes at this point. He's at that age where it's not cool again. And it's, it's, it was cool when he was a kid, but he's like, an, he's, he's 15 now. Yeah. So he is like, oh, fine. And he goes into the airing cupboard and he just gets the sheet and he's like, are you happy now? And he cuts it lies in the sheet because he doesn't care. It's that mixed with a Dementor. Mm -hmm. And lace. Yes. There was lots of lace. Yes. Yeah. If you just yeah. put that in your head, you've seen it. You can imagine it. Yeah, 100%. I also love the, co the like, beyond just the vampire and the fact that it is a bedsheet. I love the rest of the costuming in this movie, but especially our narrator and the fact that he's there with kind of, like, his large bejeweled ring, long sideburns and kind of, like, ruffled lace cuffs as well. And as he's got kind of got his hand up to his face in shock, like, <gasps> you see the ruff come out of his sleeve. Oh, and it's quite beautiful. It's it's beautiful high camp. I love it. And all of that coupled with like the artificial fog, um, the clearly papier mache castle, the fake ivy, and the fact that it's all moonlit nighttime. I loved it. I was here for it. I felt like I was on a movie set because I was. Oh yeah, I've completely agree with you there. My note that I made for this section was, for a movie about lesbian vampires, we're getting a lot of this random dude. <laughs> Who disappears for the rest he of the movie, by the way. For most of the rest of the movie. He comes back at the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and comes back at the very end to ruin it with men. Yes. Well, I mean, we don't want to give you any spoilers right now. You're going to get spoilers mm. in approximately however many minutes it takes us to get to the end <laughs> act. The other note I made was, Vampire Girl is cute and blonde, has very shiny hair, please drop the routine. Um... <laughs> So I was taking. I think, this I very think it's seriously. being. I think. I think the routine is uh, being immortal. You know what? Mm. That makes sense. That checks out. I will mm -hmm. say, and we kind of briefly talked about this before we started to record, but the the effects were really good. There, there's a decapitation that happens at this point, and genuinely very very good special effects, very well practical effects. Yeah, like they had um, Madame Two Swords head being like cut off, loads of blood everywhere. Um, I laughed when the vampire was killed at the beginning of the movie. I'm sure people in 1970 may have been genuinely shocked. Mm. It's really difficult for me to put myself in the mindset of somebody in the 1970s. I don't know whether someone in the 1970s didn't I I think they understood what movies were Jazza like I don't think that they were that gonna be that shocked I think <laughs> it's not quite like in the 1920s when they first showed people a train coming yeah and they ran away and people ran out of the movie yeah yeah, yeah yeah no I think that I think that it was like it was campy back then it was campy now it was very much yeah my favorite bit of this whole big very very beginning section before we get to the party it is the disclaimer because it goes from this section. It's like a good cold open of, you know, this guy's a vampire hunter. He's, he's a, avenging his sister. There's this woman who's going around trying to kill people. We get some, some of him explaining how to kill a vampire. And we also get her just being really, really scared of a cross. So, you know, oh, that bit of law is also correct. But mm. um, once when the kind of credits start to roll at the beginning, there is a disclaimer that any characters or events portrayed are clearly fictitious, which definitely feels like something real vampires making a movie would say. <laughs> are you saying, are we going to have to make keep our eye out for more evidence that these are actual vampires making actual movies? 
Is Peter Cushing a vampire? Who can tell? Actually, you know what? He was somehow in Rogue One. so He does have the vibes. Yeah. So then we get to the actual party, which is so aggressively 60s in its hair, makeup and clothing. Oh my God, the eyeliner. It's the eyeliner. Incredible. I was taking notes for my drag character. Like I am doing cat eyes from now on. I would honestly love to see you as a in drag as a lesbian vampire. I feel like that would be beautiful. Hey, just you wait until Halloween this year. <laughs> It'll happen. Also, in 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 again with the over the top style acting, the over the top style props and stuff. I'm not going to lie to you. There is no way that you could watch this film with the sound on and not know who the baddies are because the music really is not subtle. Uh, there is no no subtleties to this music. You very quickly know who is you're meant to find menacing which they needed to do because the acting is so wooden. It's really trying to like give you something, give you some indication because the characters are basically just standing around without expressions. <laughs> um, and also like makeup. So you assume that the man who clearly has a inch of white stick on his face, you assume that he is the bad guy vampire because he turns up, has a flowy cape and is... Uh, Whiter than I am, mm. which is saying something. Now's a good time to point out this man. So basically, the plot of the party is there's like, well, there's not much, but essentially it's just an excuse for our lead lesbian vampire to turn up and for her, we assume lesbian vampire mother to, I don't know why I said lesbian specifically, mainly we can assume she's a vampire. She might also be mm -hmm. a lesbian, it's unconfirmed. Kind of drops her off and is like, oh no, who will look after my daughter while I conveniently have to go away? Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, I guess we'll look after her. So this whole party is essentially setting up that she's gonna have to stay with this family for a little while. But every so mm -hmm. often interspersed is just the aforementioned man that Jazza has just um, briefly described who just has very bad like white face paint makeup on and looks very Dracula-y and just sort of grins a lot. And he's just never explained the entire movie. It's great. Yeah. And every now and again throughout the movie, there will be a shot of the lesbian vampires doing lesbian vampire things. And then that will cut away as a transition to a silhouette of the, the man with the white face on the, on the horse. And I'm like, this movie wants us to believe that this, that this, I assume that well, no, he is a vampire. He's confirmed to be a vampire at the end because he smiles and has this point. It's canon. Points. Yeah, it's canon. But he is confirmed to be a vampire. And I'm like, are we to believe that he is the one pulling the strings for everything? I think that's what we were meant to believe. In which case I kind of dislike because part of the thing that I loved about this movie was the women leads and women, like the middle section of the movie is just the women kind of like, conversing and trying to kill one another why does there have to be a male pu puppet master but then i realized or or like shoot this down bowen and i'm sure you will if you think if you do think it is shit um pew pew, uh, pew, pew uh, he's dracula right well okay so it's this question of like the dracula character is so well known and so iconic in everything about him. Not necessarily the actual original Dracula from the book, because most de depictions of Dracula are nothing like him, but the image of him that has been created by Hollywood, by movies and by kind of, not even just urban legends, but like people's people's imagination from, from movies and like physical mm -hmm, representations mm -hmm. of him. So I think it would be very logical to assume that it was meant to be Dracula but it's it maybe it's just because he is so synonymous with vampires. We see if we saw any vampire that looked vaguely like old timey pale skin, 
Mm. we would maybe assume it was Dracula. But then who else is it going to be? Like, so Carmilla is our titular vampire lover. Mm -hmm. And apart from Dracula, like, obviously, they're originally from different universes. They're from different books. They are... (laughs) Different cinematic universes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like Marvel and DC. Most ambitious crossover, the vampire lovers. (laughs) But if it's going to be anybody, I feel like it has to be Dracula. Yeah. Uh, Because I feel like nobody else is going to be calling the shots for Carmilla. Mm. And even arguably, you'd argue that Carmilla wouldn't be, like, canonically in the book, she wouldn't be taking any direction from no man. Indeed. So we should probably introduce Carmilla, our main lesbian. Mm. At this vampire. point, going by Marcilla, in Mar- a, in an extremely clever, uh, different version of her name. Yes. It's not. It was like a, it was a fake name, but it was just weirdly close to her actual name. It's a little bit too close, right? So she is played by Ingrid Pitt, who is a Polish-British actress. And her Wikipedia page is incredibly impressive. She is a Holocaust survivor. Did you know that? I didn't. It's really, I mean, the Hammer Horror, I know that we're kind of taking the mick out of it, but ultimately they, it has produced some incredibly iconic, especially British actors and actresses. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were in like a ton of those very specific Hammer Horror movies and like very much became like icons because of it. So no, I didn't know that about her, but we love to learn. Yeah, she's a, she was a, a, a Polish Jew and was born in 1937, was in a concentration camp in, um, in Poland, managed to escape to the UK. And then it was the era when all of, the, all of Hollywood were kind of like marrying like seven or eight times. She's had several marriages. Uh, she's not had seven or eight. She's had three marriages, but had the whole classic thing of, you know what, I'm just going to become an actress, move to Hollywood was a waitress for years until she got discovered. And I've got to say, I think that she carries the rest of the cast, I will say including Peter Cushing. How dare you, sir? I I mean, this is one of his performances. There are other things that he's done better. But uh, she carries this whole movie on her shoulders, I think, Ingrid Pitt. I think that she is not she's not so camp that it makes it funny but she really ups the energy like throughout the film in all of the scenes and the development of her character yeah i agree so i i kind of made a note about this i think that you can see within her fighting to get out is some complexity around carmilla to the point where i like kept thinking it was going to be discussed in some way so what essentially happens uh, as i mentioned at the party we it's it's a mechanism for Camilla and Laura to become friends and have to stay together in the house. Mm. Laura basically slowly starts losing her mind. She starts suffering from nightmares. That she's being attacked by this giant cat. She screams a lot. Oh boy, do they love to scream in this? I love it so much. It's I okay. I'm going to give you another metaphor for the scream. The scream is like the scream that you get in a high school movie when a teenager has been punked by their younger brother and their hair like their hair has been dyed green and they look directly into the mirror that is also directly into the camera and they take a deep breath and then they scream and then the camera zooms out of, like to the house and then to the like country and then a load of yeah, birds yeah, like yeah. flutter out of trees that's the vibe 
uh, yeah. from every scream, and there's multiple in this uh, particular movie. What I love, Rowan, is that we're very quickly realizing that this season of uh, Queen Review Podcast, all of your references are going to be to teen trash moments. Like that's yeah, the... the best of all the genres, other than horror. But I know that you can't handle that, obviously. So I, I decided Leave me alone. to change my I will references. I'm not be bullied by you. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's this very kind of classic gothic idea of like s- slowly trying to figure out like what's real what's not real did am i actually being attacked is this a nightmare uh, has someone caused me to feel this way and while this is happening we get this very intense kind of friendship going on between these two women i think there's literally a, an exchange where one of them says i shall die when you leave and the, the other's like i shall never leave you and then they do kissy kiss 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 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but what's also really interesting to me which i actually feel like i still see a lot in lesbian movies is that there is no actual relationship development which makes sense in this film because it's like supernatural allure right it's like her being like i'm just this lesbian vampire and so you're gonna fall for me even though we literally have never had a conversation properly like Mm. we never see that on screen but i often see that to my mind at least in lesbian movies especially the like historic lesbian movies where they just really love to bank on the idea of like the repressed women trope and so Mm. they're like we don't have to have them have conversations and talk about things because they're repressed right they just sort of inexplicably now want to kiss there's no build-up and nothing and no discussions and uh so i was like at least here it makes sense canonically with the idea of her having this like sexual allure to her victims yeah it kind of does I, i i will and this is something that uh people smarter than me have talked about about carmilla the original text from the 1800s where she juxtaposes with a character like dracula because carmilla actually seems to genuinely fall in love with the people that she ends up killing uh, or tending to vampires. And I felt like Pitt's depiction of the... She was really good at kind of like... I believed that she really did care for these young women that she ended up... Spoiler kills mm, yeah completely agree there's these there are just these moments where she's the character on her own like and she suddenly has this look of like deep grief or deep sadness or deep like confliction in her and i'm like oh if this wasn't a harem horror like i this same story could be played out and it we really could have dug into the idea of like i need to do this to survive or like i cannot this is what i was meant to do like i've been living for hundreds of years and this is what's always happened but this is like mentally horrific and i feel like there's some interesting like vampire media that does explore this idea of like what do you do if you just keep on living and you have to hurt people in order to survive like what does that look like that and see or Mm -hmm. seeing that conflict of someone who has fallen for someone for the for real for the first Mm -hmm. time that previously hadn't been thinking like these things are really interesting to explore not where this film is going another spoiler (laughs) alert gang that there is no complex the the biggest complexity is this very specific look that we have interpreted from an actress who was not given anything else in the script to work with uh, yeah, let, let, shall we just say this up the front? Um, up the front? <laughs> shall we, shall we, we just shall. say this up front? <laughs> that uh, the script is not this movie's strong point. Mm, yeah, if you couldn't have told that already, I feel like we've really hinted quite heavily at it <laughs> so far. Yeah. But yeah, so the end of this first section is essentially Laura is bitten. She has these fang bites on her. She she dies and Marcella's like, bye. Yeah, disappears. I'm out of here, baby. Mm-hmm. And so we get to our second section. Mm-hmm. 
So that first section has basically, it's the bullet point version of what's going to happen next with a new girl, mm-hmm. essentially. Yes, is what's gonna exactly. Happen, right? That's exactly it. Like, this is what Carmilla does. She is parachuted in convolutedly to be to befriend a young woman in a manor house and then gradually over time kills her while terrorising the local peasantry as well because every now and again we'll have like a peasant washerwoman running through the forest uh, who then uh, stumbles, falls and then screams and does the, as you said, the ah! kind of moment. Wonderful impression, yes. <laughs> Thank you. I'm conscious of, of peeking the mic. <laughs> Otherwise, I would. You know, I'd do. It. Oh, yeah, no, I know you would. So this one, we get a little more titillation, though. Like, we, functionally, you're right. It's exactly the same story, but we do get a little more titillation. So we have like Emma comes into Camilla's room while Camilla is just naked in the bath and just has a casual conversation about mm-hmm. the dresses that they're going to wear. And Camilla's like, "You should take everything off while you try on this dress because it uh." ruins the shape to have underwear on and she's like oh okay and like there's literally mm-hmm. no reason for this scene apart from for the audience of like this kind of sex and fear and horror and camp and mm-hmm. nudity and like all this stuff coming together in the in the way that it so often does so even at that point i was like oh this is ridiculous and then they start chasing each other around while topless in what i genuinely think might be the most unconvincing chase scene in all of cinema it's kind of like when you see the bit uh, like in in maybe a more modern movie where two women have been asked to uh, do a pillow fight and and it's sexy just trust me it's sexy all the way through this second conquest of camilla of emma's character who is this doe-eyed idiot frankly yeah she um, does have a type doesn't she yeah <laughs> that's <laughs> Oh my god, I didn't even think of it like that. But yeah, 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 doe-eyed idiots. But she, like, I, I, I found myself questioning all the way through kind of like this moment of undressing and, oh, tits, um, oh, a bare ass, you know? I don't, with, and can you answer this for me? Is this sexy? Well, as an asexual lesbian, Jazza, I don't really, I'm both highly qualified and utterly unqualified to answer that question. <laughs> Which is but why no, I have... not in my mind. <laughs> But I think as well, it's 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 that I think that the sexiness with this release, I don't know, maybe there's probably some lesbians that are just like, yes, tits. But I think like we have them. We know what they look like. So it's kind of like <laughs> when it's someone else, I feel like it's the connection that that mate that that logic. I just I just want to put this out there. Oh, that logic does not, not transfer no, to gays. That's men. fair enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it is this thing of like there is literally no feeling of connection between them during that chase scene. Like I think there are other bits where there's more like when they're doing the sort of hypnotizey seductressy bit that like feels like there's mm-hmm, slightly mm-hmm. more on string chemistry. But like that scene where they're chasing each other around could not have been less sexy less sexy if it tried like it it, just in an embarrassing kind of way that's like oh god i guess i'm watching this now this is happening Mm -hmm. because i do think as well it is like it is very funny to me because i think immediately it just reminds me of the super (laughs) the super cliche to the point where it's almost become a meme thing that happens with gay male characters in movies and in porn as well where they they kind of have a like they're sort of play fighting and then suddenly it's like oh no now we are on top of each other and it is sexual. Uh-huh. Like CRGBF episode. Yeah, it's like, it's it's such a trope. And it's so funny that it kind of like, this was like even less convincing than those things. I was really interested to see, because this was on so many sort of like, you know, classic queer movie lists, but 
typically movies that are this old, you don't really have the actual canonical confirmation in any way. And you definitely do in this movie. Like they they really ham mm-hmm. it up. And although it does fall into the trope we'll talk about um, in a second about like kind of the evil lesbian trope, it's supernatural and over the top and kind of didn't mind it in that way. But yeah, once again, Emma starts having nightmares, starts screaming. Everyone else kind of goes away on, uh, like the dad goes away on business. She has a suitor, but he's not, you know, it's it's in the olden times. So he doesn't really come mm-hmm, around mm-hmm. all the time. He just occasionally he'll turn up. But what we do have that's a little bit different is the kind of governess character, yeah, the, like the Mademoiselle Peridot, who's kind of like becomes this accomplice to Carmilla because she's just seducing everyone. I loved Carmilla and the governess. And I want them to go away and have a home with the... What was the cat's name? Gustav. Oh, yeah. You know what? I want them to go move to a cottage in the Romanian countryside and just live with Gustav. uh, Because... um, So as well as seducing Emma, Carmilla begins seducing... Uh, and killing all of the peasantry around the mansion, Carmilla begins to seduce the governess. And that is when it does get sexy. And I was like, oh, all of a sudden, there actually feels like there is chemistry between these two women. And I thought that um, Carmilla had turned the governess into a vampire, but it turns out that she doesn't, that the governess is just her familiar and just really fancies the pants off of Carmilla. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, with an ass like that. I mean, who can blame her? Mm. But yeah, there's an interesting thing here that, I'll, again, I'll come back to when we talk about lesbian tropes, but there's this exchange that happens between Emma and Carmilla about, you know, I love you, I don't want anyone taking you away from me, and Emma being like, we'll always be friends. She's like, no, it's not the same thing. It's different. I want you to love me for all your life. Like, it's very much the idea of like, Camilla is the predatory kind of obsessive, like actual lesbian. And then you have this like poor, innocent Emma who didn't didn't understand what was happening. Like, mm-hmm. she didn't know that that was what was going on in the mind of this perverted lesbian vampire. I sometimes also get the the feeling that Camilla is a bit of a like the lesbian version of a negging dude bro like she keeps on telling telling emma this oh you talk such nonsense like um getting really defensive about the way that she feels about funerals for example bloody hates funerals completely gaslights emma about like the bite marks on her being from a brooch and not from anything else yeah truly camilla is the gaslight gatekeep girl boss of our (laughs) That is that is the classification that we needed. Thank you very much, Rowan. I appreciate it. I don't know if you had anything else to say about this section, because I think the third section is like, the boys are back in town. Oh, I called the third section lesbian vampire killers. Oh, yeah. You know what? That also works very well. <laughs> this is essentially when all of the guys in town are like, hey... I don't know whether you've noticed how every woman is dying in the local area by having their blood drained, but I think there may be foul play at work. Mm -hmm. Can I just say, the men, there have been practically no men having speaking parts in this movie for like a good 50% of the middle part of it. The first 25% is um, uh, Camilla and the uh, the aftermath of the party, and then we have 50% of just women seducing one another and being hot and and gustav the cat and 
and Gustav the Cat, of course. Sorry, <laughs> I won't forget Gustav the Cat. Um, and then these men come in, and I'll be completely honest, I'd forgotten who most of them were. Oh, yeah, I fully could not remember who any of these men were. And what their relationships were with the women previously. So it is all of the aggrieved men who have been affected by Carmilla's murdering um so it is the father of laura who she killed in act one it is the suitor of emma who Mm -hmm. at this point is going through the stages of death as well um and also the father of emma as well who has just come back from business and surprise that guy from the beginning who who (laughs) was narrating oh sure the guy with the sideburns and the there's like there's also just randomly like there's a doctor there's a butler there's a landlord yeah all of these men that i'll be honest movie i didn't i don't care about and i feel like it wanted us to root for the men because they're the ones who are like injustice and i was like now i know that carmilla is going around and killing all of these doe-eyed dumb women but I'm on her side, I'll be completely honest, and I kind of want the men to leave them alone so that they can have their happy lesbian life with the governess and Gustav. Yeah, and instead the men keep trying to bring garlic flowers into their room, which is honestly very rude. (laughs) Yeah, so one of the workers in the mansion, Mr. Renton, is supposed to be a... No, he's not really a hero. Basically, um... I immediately dislike him because we introduced him as he slaps the arse of a bar wench in the peasant village. Um, He then decides, oh yeah, definitely everything that's happening to Emma is vampiric in nature. He reckons the vampire is the governess, actually, rather than Carmilla. And then starts talking with the landlord of the local pub um, and getting advice and so brings in garlic flowers to Emma's bedroom to try and ward off the vampires and calls in a doctor who also as well as encouraging the use of these flowers brings in uh, a crucifix and puts it around Emma's neck which makes it impossible for both Carmilla and for the governess to go into the room and to complete the killing of our doe-eyed dumb girl. Yeah, which uh, ultimately, yeah, a great plan, to be honest. It did work. They Pretty foolproof. Uh, yeah, it was pretty good until Renton gets seduced by Carmilla and just goes, oh, you know what? All I want to do is make out with you and I'm going to like murder this girl for it. And you know what? I was happy to see him die at the hands of Carmilla. Good for her. And then she's also like... I'm not going to kill the doctor and all. Like, just the do- we have a nice scene when the doctor's horse gets super spooked, and she somehow, I guess, has teleported there because she never really seems to leave the house, and yet she's always off bloody killing people. So yeah, she's she's like, you know what? We enough of this. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> so kind of simultaneously, while all of the the lads are going on a little road trip to her old family castle to try and yeah where she's buried yeah yeah she's like oh time for a kidnap and (laughs) decides to essentially kidnap emma and in the process dump the governess can i just say this just cemented cemented carmilla as as the absolute fuckboy of this movie you're you know what you're absolutely right she is like she is the fuckboy of this movie (laughs) the governess is there on the floor begging take me with you she loves you she wants to create that life with gustav she wants the cottagecore dream with the cat and the, oh, this is, in the woods this is 100%, in romania 
Who knew in the 1970s that this was going to pave the way for the cottage court movement, know, the lesbian right? cottage court movement? That's the true history of it. And then there is so much screaming again, classic, because she decides to to feed on the governess and yeah. maybe shouldn't have done that in front of Emma if she wanted Emma mm-hmm. to come away with her. But, you know, she did and that's on her. So mm-hmm. all the screaming again. And then the suit is here to save the day, whose name is Carl, which... Just... No, it is. No, it's not. I completely missed that. What? That's... So it's funny. Carl. Yeah, Carl's here to save the day. And so Camilla's Carl. like, oh, well, I guess I better skip town. This is too much for me. And then runs back to the castle, which obviously we as the audience know is filled with the lads who are up to no good. Mm-hmm. The lesbian vampire killers. Yeah, the lesbian vampire mm-hmm. killers, the lads. And so, uh, yeah, she just runs back to the castle, has a little nap. And then while she's napping, doesn't notice them all come around her coffin and and stab her in the heart. Uh, can I just say, they don't, she doesn't notice them finding her coffin, moving a massive uh, kind of like slate off of her coffin, carrying her coffin into the chapel, opening the coffin, then moving her dress down so that it exposes is her chest, and then placing the stake on her breast so that they can actually stab her. She doesn't notice any of that. She's fast asleep, bless her. She's hibernating, having a wee <laughs> nap, and she deserves it. Very cute. This is all happening during the night as well, and that's when she's meant to be awake. I don't question it. It's fine. She's okay. she's hibernating. Um, and then they once again they stab her through the chest. She is then decapitated. Which again, the physical effects of this movie were not what I was expecting for 1970. They're to be very honest. good. Have we gone backwards? Possibly. I I genuinely feel like the special effects of Jurassic Park hold up better than the special effects of Jurassic World. So yes, you're. You're correct. The oldies <laughs> are the goodies. I am with you. I really enjoyed that they were like, yeah, Peter Cushing can have the killing blow. He's a, he's the star of this. Mm-hmm. He's no real connection to a lot of what's going on here, but sure. And then at the end, Camilla's portrait on the wall has changed to be all vampire instead of all hot like she was before. Very Dorian Gray. Yeah, it's great. It was it was very much like Chekhov's decapitation because they did the guy at the very beginning was like, the only way you can kill them is if you decapitate them. And it's like, oh, I wonder if that'll come back later on. It's like a, <laughs> a plot point. And then, yeah, that was the end of the movie. We, had, we have experienced the vampire lovers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bowen, did you... How was this... How was this experience for you? Because obviously this isn't what you wanted. You wanted, quote unquote real horror so here's the thing Mm, go i will admit when we were coming up with these movies and we and you decided that we were going to watch the vampire lovers i was worried can i just say i rolled a dice that decided this yeah you did annoyingly so it wasn't me that decided it was the dice it was the fame I will admit at the time I was a bit like oh disappointed because i was like oh i don't know if i'm that interested in this or whatever but then I did watch the movie and I agree with my initial assessment. I was so <laughs> bored. This was such a boring movie. <laughs> I, I couldn't disagree with you more. Oh, I loved God. it. I loved it so much. I could have predicted that though. I feel like we've had we've disagreed on movies before in this podcast and I think it's just you enjoy trash. This is a no, no, no. no, like, no and that's, no, not, no, no. that's not even meant to be me like like <laughs> t- taking a dig at you I'm like you genuinely do appreciate sort of like campy trashy like low budget stuff I think more than I do yes uh, yeah no I'm with you that is my vibe that is my my modus operandi but also I will say 
all the way through, I was just fascinated that a movie like this was out in 1970. And I was also just captivated by all of the women. Either Ingrid Pitt really does carry this full movie. She was absolutely phenomenal throughout the whole thing. But then every single woman is just absolutely stunning. And I don't understand why they're hanging around with all of these mediocre men. I wanted it to just be the women living their cottagecore fantasy. And I was so sucked in to their beauty and like some of their sexy flirting. I was super into the governess and all of that shit. I genuinely was hooked to this movie. I, I really enjoyed the ride. I thought it was great. I will say some of that is based on kind of like, oh, it's isn't this an interesting depiction of like the end of the height of the Hammer Horror movement and of the type of movie that was out at the time and stuff like that? What a nerd. <laughs> um, but I had, a, I had a really nice time. I'd recommend it. Yeah, I also, I guess, appreciated it on that more intellectual level of like, mm, this is, I was, I was like, at the very least, there's stuff that we can say about it. In the same way as, and I did predict this is what was going to happen, that like when you do an experiment in science class, really, I'm, I just keep doing high school metaphors and it's not even on yeah. purpose. Um, <laughs> when you do an experiment in science class and it goes horribly wrong and all of your results are wrong, you're like, well, at least I'll have something to write in my evaluation, even if the results and the conclusion are terrible. I'll have, I'll basically just be able to like absolutely destroy myself by being like me from 10 minutes ago when I did this experiment is ridiculous and uh, doesn't know what she was doing, an absolute fool. Uh, or here are all the things she did wrong. And you'll, and you'll get really good marks for being reflective. Yeah, exactly. You're really reflective. Yeah. <laughs> and I kind of feel like this is the vibe of like, well, I didn't enjoy it, but there's a lot we can say about it. So I guess this is the section where we talk about a little bit more context that's specific around queer movies. Lesbian vampires, they're a thing. So this is not, this very much was part of a tradition like you talked about Camilla before. And this is uh, a tradition that has very much been with us for a long time. For a number of reasons. So one, as we talked about before, the vampire genre ties in a lot to sex and sexuality. And it only makes sense that if you're going to talk about perversion and sexuality, that lesbians come up, you know, it's uh, it's just how we do. <laughs> so I think also the fact that there is a there is a risque, a danger and alert sexuality element of vampires. And so if you're going to pick a sexuality to titillate the assumed to be male audience, with a bit of taboo, with a bit of danger, with a lot of titties, the lesbians <laughs> will do it for you. So mm. this is very much, yeah, old old trope, which has continued on through the decades. And this was absolutely no exception. It actually was like a very noted example of it that a lot of people will talk about. I think it was very interesting that um, when you look at the Wikipedia article for this movie, it gives you, often Wikipedia articles will tell you like what the rotten score is with critics. Mm. And... The note that they've made of it being certified rotten, I looked at the citation and it was from 2013. It is now absolutely not certified rotten. The critic score is 71 and the audience score is 60. So it kind of has gotten more critical clout as a cult classic than sort of a good movie at the time getting good reviews. It's very much mm -hmm. had basically the reaction that we sort of had to it of... Mm there is something about the context of it and something about its sort of cult classic status, which has, I think, elevated in, in subsequent reviews. Is it? I'm sensing a mirroring of what we saw with Jennifer's body mm. a little bit. You are not right? wrong. You are absolutely not mm. wrong. Uh, there is this idea 
of the, as I kind of mentioned earlier, corrupting lesbian force, right? Mm. So you would often have, not just in like supernatural ways, in, in more realistic dramas around these decades, especially within the Hays Code or around it, of the experienced, maybe older sexual lesbian and the young innocent virgin who didn't really understand what was going on and couldn't be blamed and was sucked in, but just needed to be kind of taken out of this woman's thrall and given to a nice good man. And that would kind of cure her. <laughs> like th this very much is something that is a big, big part of the conceptualization people had of lesbians, of what, what that relationship looked like. And if I think queer people in general was like the predator, right? So you had a lot of, in our history, we have a lot of stuff where, you know, queer people shouldn't be teachers because they shouldn't be around young people. Mm. Ridiculous, obviously. And then more recently we have the sort of trans bathroom panic stuff around the idea that, oh, trans people shouldn't be trusted w with our, our children in bathrooms, like just completely ridiculous. But mm absolutely ties into this idea of like the evil lesbian trope which plays out so much uh over over time over over this genre um if you're being interpreting it in maybe a little bit more of a generous way or if you wanted to subvert it then you might look at how becoming a vampire sort of is a symbol of no longer being tied to sort of puritanical ideas of sex and sexuality and it being a very freeing experience and that that kind of tying into queerness. Like I definitely think there's room for that interpretation in like more modern explorations of lesbian vampires. I'd be really interested to see stuff like that. But yeah, there's a 1936 film, Dracula's Daughter, yeah. which has a lot of lesbian subtext. And that was commented on in The Celluloid Closet, the amazing documentary about LGBT cinema, lesbian vampire killers, obviously. The 1936 um, Dracula's Daughter was actually a victim of the Hays Code. So it was stopped from even being filmed as being explicitly queer before they started uh, actual production. And it's an awful lot of like fade to black. Um, but that could have been this movie, really. This is kind of like a, a reimagining of it in a, in certain ways, just with more tits. Mm, indeed. Mm. Lesbian vampire killers, obviously, the the, mm. the the James Gordon movie. Even Doctor Who, there's like this episode, The Vampires of Venice, where like technically they aren't vampires. They're like, they basically are like fish vampires. And this matriarch, it's like this matriarchal <laughs> cult that like gaggle. It's Doctor Who. I'm sure it makes sense in context. Uh, yeah, it's like she gathers together this like cult of brainwashed women and feeds on them. And you're uh -huh. like, hmm, these implications feel very pointed because uh, this yeah. is such an actual uh, thing. There's, I'm also thinking about bit. I was going right? to say as well. Yeah. Right. yeah so do yeah. you want to do you want to um, talk a bit about bit? It's like I guess a more modern example of this. Yeah, is a is a very similar thing. So basically, somebody a young woman moves to LA, gets bit, and basically joins uh, like a, a lesbian vampire street gang who go around killing men because men are trash. It's broadly the the context of the movie, right? Yeah, and, and and really interestingly, it's one of those movies where you have a trans protagonist as well as like a, yeah. like a queer yeah, yeah, trans yeah, yeah. protagonist. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, that's some interesting, I guess, context of the lesbian vampire. Like this is not an isolated incident. Like when we're talking about horror as a genre and queer horror, the lesbian vampire is an absolutely quintessential figure. And this film is, for all of its faults that we pointed out, slash loved in the case of Jazza, is a really, really important to that kind of element of queer history. 
Mm-hmm. Did you have any else, uh, anything to add around queer movie history around horror? Well, there's kind of less around the, the, the movie side of things, but I wanted to talk about the source text a little bit, which is the reason that we get to see kind of like such an explicitly mm. queer movie in 1970. So Carmilla was released in 1872 by the Irish novelist Sheridan Le Fanu, who is uh, a man, unfortunately. The name like Sheridan, that, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm sure he was... Fine. Predated Dracula by like a quarter of a century and was really, I mean, it's quite difficult to find examples of how it was received back in the 1800s, but is a really, nowadays we definitely call it progressive because when you look at it compared to a lot of other uh, contemporary texts for the time, the women in Carmilla are very much seen as equals, if not superior to men, which we also see in this reimagining in 1970. And this really did, it was significant because of the juxtaposition that we had between what kind of like a Victorian man was supposed to be. He was supposed to be, if you think of Mr. Banks, Mr. Banks is the idea of what like a Victorian man is meant to be, head of the household, making sure that kids are beautiful and clothed, the wife doesn't have to work and is kind of like this this upstanding part of society but the men constantly get tricked by the women both Carmilla and her familiars throughout the novel and for that reason it's very very significant also the fact that she is uh, like Carmilla as a as a book character also embodies a lot of like the classic queer tropes that we see in horror as well the idea of living a double life coming to life and being your real self during the night time being a misunderstood monster the fact that she really seems to genuinely love her victims um, and is pained whenever she actually ends up murdering them and like she really i think in another universe Rather than Dracula, we would have Carmilla as kind of like the archetype of what a vampire is. But even though Dracula is clearly kind of like the Don, Carmilla has been reimagined in this movie, but also there were the uh, iterations of uh, Dracula's daughter that definitely draw inspiration from uh, the Carmilla book. There are uh, iterations of her throughout kind of like movies and TV shows, and she is the final boss of quite a lot of vampire and Castlevania-inspired video games and stuff like that. But can I tell you, Rowan, Mm -hmm. what my favourite reimagining of the Carmilla story is? Please do. So in 2014, there was a web series called Carmilla that was told in the style of a Lonely Girl 15 vlog of, oh, I'm a journalist and student doing vlogs about kind of like this mysterious stuff that's happening in the dorm of this Austrian university. I am here trying to figure out why my roommate has gone missing and this new girl called Carmilla has come into my dorm room and she keeps on bringing back girls and uh, is seducing me and they go on this three season romp all told from kind of like the single camera perspective in classic web series style. They did four seasons of this, technically, um, and then ended up creating a movie, which was called Carmilla the Movie, (laughs) inspired. Um, But this iteration not only 
has stolen my heart. I've watched um, uh, about an hour of the first season uh, already in our research in my research today, but it won a butt ton of awards for kind of like being outstanding storytelling in the mid twenty teens as well. Jazza, mm. Jazza, Jazza, Jazza. Yeah. So bold of you to assume that I, a lesbian. <laughs> have not heard of the Camilla web series, probably the most well-known like lesbian fandom on the internet. This is amazing that you have uh, found this as like a novelty, like a first time thing. I like, this, this. This is like, there's this web series. Don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called Carmilla. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what? Is this like me saying, "Have you like anime? Have you heard of Evangelion? Is it, is it like that kind of... Vibe. Is that the wrong reference to use? With you? Wrong reference to use to me, but cool, I appreciate okay. it anyway. Yes, this is like a very well-known web series. I'd never heard of it before and I'm in love and this is going to be the rest of my weekend is watching this. I love that for you. Please update me as to how you feel about it. Oh, I will. Have you seen the movie as well? What's the movie like? I haven't seen the movie, no. Okay. I, I, maybe maybe that's a future episode. I hate, I, hate to I hate to admit this after I just dragged you so hard for not knowing that this was like a thing. I haven't actually watched it. But it's that, it's the zeitgeisty thing of like, if you were a lesbian online, you know about the Camilla web series. Got it. Got that, it. Yeah, you're right. Did win a lot of awards. I hate to ruin things for you, Bowen, but I, uh, this may be, a, come as a shock to you, but I am not a lesbian online. What? I know, I'm so sorry. What? <laughs> How dare you? But yeah, this is, uh, I'm glad that we got that bit of context. I feel like there's, yeah, a lot to say about this movie and a lot to kind of appreciate about it. That isn't the movie. Anyway, shall we get with that um, damning report from Rowan? Shall we have a little? <laughs> shall we have a little look at like how we would both rate it? The next rating that we like to give is the colors of the rainbow. So this is how many colors of the rainbow flag would, would we give it? And you know what? Mm -hmm. We'll also do which colors. Yeah, yeah, I'm down for that. And so we're going with the, the six bars. Uh, so red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and of course purple. I'm going to give it two <laughs> out of six. It was a two out of six film for me. I'll be real. I, th I, I thought that that was, uh, that's more than I was expecting, to be real. I think that the other bar, one of the bars, okay, let's go with one of the bars is red, obviously. Um, that can be the bar for the film itself. And then I'll give it- I feel like whenever there is a vampire in a movie, it has to be given the red, obviously. The red bar, right? And then yeah. the second one I'll do purple, but it's more because of its kind of contribution to the queer canon in general than like a particular enjoyment of the film itself. Mm. So yeah, I'm giving it two out of six. Red and purple. How about you? Okay, so I haven't thought about this very much. Um, uh, and so I'm just going to start talking and see what happens. So I want to give it three to four bars. Okay. Which, a gen I I'm a generous man, what can I say? Okay, okay. The first bar, red. Obviously, obviously. yeah. Passion, life, sex. Blood. It is the colour of Carmilla's dress, her crown, that pendant that gives away where she's sleeping under the chapel. All of those things. All of those things. The second one I'm going to give is green, nature. Just like that forest there that that peasant girl mm. tripped over in, rolled over and screamed yeah. into like the Yeah, like Gustav the cat in nature. Gustav the cat, famously natural. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to go with a spirit 
which is purple. Mm -hmm. And that is because there was lots of... Ooh, they tried. Um, they had some. They had the spirit, and that's what's important. It's the thought that counts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then the fourth one I'm going to give is mm, is blue because of serenity. But I am going to uh, interpret serenity as not giving a fuck. Uh, and Carmilla yes. is there to break some hearts. Mm -hmm. She is the fuckboy of this yeah, movie. You're right. And she, when the governess is there begging her to take her with her. Carmilla gives how many fucks? Zero. It's very, it very much has the energy of that meme that's like, the governess is like, I'll die without you. And Camilla's like, then perish. <laughs> yes. 100%. Does not care whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, look at us. Well done. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter to keep up to date with everything podcast related. If you feel entertained, please do think about supporting us over on Patreon. Our patrons really do allow us to put in the hours of research and recording that goes into these episodes. So sincerely, thank you. One of our perks on Patreon is a queer movie watch along every last Saturday of the month exclusively for our patrons hosted on our Discord. Gay fun really is had by all so come join us. The Queer Movie Podcast is edited by Julia Shafini. We're also part of Multitude Productions, so make sure you check out all of their other awesome podcasts full of both fun and frivolity. Make sure you follow and subscribe to this here podcast so that you are primed for our next episode. Thank you very much, my darlings. You will hear us very soon. Toodaloo. Uh, bye.